Well, if you have a Bible, we'll continue on in Mark, the Gospel of Mark. I was going to try to get everything I wanted to say in one message, and it's going to be two, so we'll call this Sent as Sheep in the Midst of Wolves, Part 1. I'm not going to really deal so much with the wolf part tonight, but that would be next time. So anyways, we'll uh, pick up here, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 7, and we'll read through verse 31, actually. It says, And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever you enter into an house, there abide till you depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Truly I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. And others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet, or as one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It's not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. And therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and unholy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee, and when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever you will, and I will give it thee. And he sware unto her, Whatsoever you shall ask of me, I will give it you up to the half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel, and the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Mark has used this technique, I haven't talked a lot about it several times, where he will start, like we just had it in chapter 5, he starts the story of Jairus, in between, here comes the woman with the issue of blood, then he comes back to Jairus. Okay, so in this story we have him sending out the twelve, and for some reason John the Baptist is stuck in the middle of that, sort of. And then you come back to the twelve, coming back to him, and that is not by mistake. He didn't go on a tangent. Something to think about. Something we'll talk about next time, why that's the case. See if anybody can come up with it. It's not a riddle, but uh, anyways, if you read Matthew's account in Matthew 10, it might give you a clue why he did that. But we'll talk about that next. But let's pray right now. Father, we just ask you once again as a body here, we just ask you to open our minds and hearts to your word. Help us, Lord, to receive what you have to say and I just ask that your anointing would be on me and on the hearts of everyone here, Lord, and that your presence here, through that, you'll speak to all of us, Lord, clearly tonight, and give us hearts to proclaim your word, your message, and the kingdom of God in our daily lives. I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. 
So, you know, we talked about previously those first six verses in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus marveled that his own hometown, he marveled the only two times in the Bible he did it, one of two times, that his own hometown rejected him, but it didn't stop him, did it? Because at the end of verse 6, it says, and he went round about the village teaching. But how many people, the question is, can one man reach at one time? So when Moses was trying to do everything himself, as he was when they were in the wilderness, his father-in-law came to him and he says, you will surely wear away, for this thing is too heavy for thee. You are not able to perform it alone. And we know Moses got help. In other words, you need help to meet all these needs. It was the case with Moses. It was the case with Jesus. So the question is, what would you do if you were a great heart surgeon and you developed this technique to do heart surgery and you could cure thousands upon thousands of people, guess what? You're not going to do it by yourself, are you? And so if you're a heart surgeon and you have a heart for people, no pun intended, what are you going to do? You're going to train other people that can be skilled as you are to do this heart surgery, right? And then you're going to strategically put them in places in the United States and around the world to help people. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's the greatest heart surgeon that has ever lived. <laughs> I'm about your spiritual heart. Now listen, in his humanity, he's only one man. So what's he doing? We're seeing here, and we've been talking about this. We'll just keep reminding ourselves. He's training the 12 to send them out. So he's demonstrated. They've heard him, just sat there and listened to him teach how to cast out demons, how to heal the sick, how to deal with crowds, how to deal with criticisms. He's training them, isn't he? That's what he's doing. And as a result of this, now we'll talk more about this the next time. Through his ministry, people either love the Lord or they hate him, don't they? And we're going to find it's the same with his true disciples. They're either going to love you or they are going to hate you just like they hated him. So who are the 12? You say, well, they're Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, and so on. But really, more to the point, what are we seeing that they're here? What are they going to be tonight? They're just extensions aren't they, of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said, he can't be everywhere, so how does he multiply himself? He multiplies himself by pouring himself into these 12. They're right there with him at all times, right? Then they can go out and they can multiply themselves in others. But the 12 are the foundation, aren't they? They're the foundation. They're the foundation of our New Testament, too. <laughs> That's where we get all the teaching from. It comes from them. But the purpose of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers that we read about in Ephesians 4 isn't so that they're an end in themselves, right? The fivefold ministry, it's not so you can come and hear an evangelist or a prophet or whatever. The purpose is not you can hear them and admire their speech. Isn't that what we're taught in Ephesians 4? That's not the end of it, is it? There's a purpose in that. It's so we can minister to others. Because he says in Ephesians 4 that he's given us that five-fold ministry for the perfecting, the maturing of the saints for the work of ministry. There is no comma. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. And as we've said many times and we've heard many times through the years, we all have ministry. So ministry, too many times I think in our mind we think of ministry, we think of preaching. Somebody that stands up in front and preaches it could include that, but it's a lot more than that. It's the work of ministry because the word for ministry is diaconia. What does that sound like? Deacon. And it means to serve. A deacon is just somebody that serves. So it's not a position of prestige. But when Martha in Luke 10, 4, she complained, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to diaconia? To serve alone. So it's the same word for ministry. And so the fivefold ministry is given as a gift to the church to be trained in the body of Christ to serve each other, to serve each other. We should be doing that. And also to serve those that are in the world the way Jesus would. Not just any way, not the way the world does with all their little programs. That's what we're learning from the Lord. That's what they're learning. We serve people the way. He would, right? Were his hands, his feet, his mouth. So we don't just speak any word of encouragement, do we? We speak a word. Scripture in season to someone that needs it, somebody that's weary. We offer God's forgiveness to the world. 
We're ambassadors in that sense, right? Lay hands on the sick, cast out demons, pray for those that are in need. That's what Jesus would do. He says it. It's in the Psalms. He even prayed for Judas, it says, when he was sick. Pray for your enemies. That's the kind of things we do. So in this section here, we're seeing he's finally sending out the 12. Because up to this point, the disciples, they've been named, but they've just kind of been there in the background, right? You don't have them hardly saying anything, right? They're just simply observing Jesus and being with him. They're not really a major factor in the story yet. Now, that's going to change. But that was his plan, was for them to just be with him. So if you would just turn back just a couple chapters to chapter 3, we'll look at it again, just to remind ourselves. Chapter 3 and verses 14 and 15, and it says this. Mark 3, 14 and 15, and he, Jesus, ordained, chose 12 out of all his disciples that they should be, first of all, be with him, and that, after the result of that, he might send them forth to preach, to have power, to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. So that's the purpose of it all, right? And so, so far, all they've done is they've just been with him, the first part, and now we're going to see the second part take place. So it says there in verse 7, and he called them unto him. And it's kind of like I heard a guy comment. It's kind of like a quarterback calling all the players in for a huddle or a coach. You know, they'll get him around. He's getting ready to give them the play, right? And what do you do, you know, back when you used to play football in your backyard, at least the way we always did it, you get the guys around and they're all looking around. You know, I'd always draw the play on my stomach. You know, you take a sharp right there. And the guy that was no good, you always told him to go long. Basically, so he'd be out of the way, right? But you draw the play, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving him the play, so to speak, right? And what's the first thing it says he does here? He calls unto him the twelve and began to send them forth. How? Two by two. Now, why is that? Because that's going to limit them, isn't it? That means there's only six places they can go instead of twelve. But there's several reasons. So anybody that's gone out and done street witnessing would know what I'm talking about. And that is, for one thing, you know, you go out two by two, it's a lot safer. And you can think nothing had happened in America safe. I've had things happen. There's been times I had a guy try to rip my wallet off. I've had different people do things. There's been places I did not feel safe. I was glad somebody was with me. But we go down to Bardstown Road, and all the roaches there wouldn't come out till it was about midnight. Then they all start coming out. Well, I mean, that's where you got your best people to witness to, but it's also probably not the safest place to be by yourself. I never went down there by myself. It's just a whole lot better to have a buddy with you. And I think that's part of the reason he's sending them out here two by two, right? The other thing, it says in the Old Testament, at the mouth of two or three witnesses shall the matter be established. That's just a principle. So there's no misunderstandings on what was said, who said what. And a lot of times, too, you're out there with somebody else. There's not all this thing about if you're talking to a woman, there's something going on, right? It's best not to, I think, if you're a guy, I would suggest. Guys should mainly talk to guys and girls to girls when you're witnessing. But you got somebody with you, you, you could do that. We've done that. It's not that big a deal. The other thing, and this is important too, all these reasons, you have somebody go with you, you don't just go out by yourself for companionship, strength, and a lot of times you'll compliment each other when that happens. In Ecclesiastes 4 it says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor, for if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. That's Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10. And that principle is definitely, I think, in effect here when he's sending these guys out two by two. And so that's generally the pattern that you see in the New Testament. You know, in Acts 3, 1, we read that Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. And it said they looked on the man and it must have been God spoke to both of them, that they witnessed. It doesn't say what all took place there, whether they talked or not, it doesn't say. But it said that he looked on both of them, and it said Peter, fastening his eyes upon this crippled man with John, said, look on us. He didn't say, look on me. And when the man was healed, Peter's the one that said that lifted him up, Peter is the one that did all the preaching, but guess what happened? They both were arrested. 
and both of them were thrown into jail. And I guarantee you, that was a great comfort to Peter that John was there, and it would have been vice versa, while they're sitting there in jail. They'd never experienced persecution like that. They didn't know what was going to happen to them, did they? And so they're there encouraging each other, a comfort to each other. I'm sure they were. In Acts 8, these guys, you couldn't separate them. Because when Samaria, when Philip went, preached to Samaria, and it's determined that they didn't have the Holy Spirit, who do they send? The didactic duo, right? They send John and Peter down there to pray for and to receive the Holy Spirit. That's just kind of the pattern. In Acts 13, when the church fasted, what did the Holy Spirit say? Probably through a prophet, separate unto me Saul. No, Saul and Barnabas. Two of them went for the work of the ministry to go on down there. And when they gave a fallen out Barnabas over Mark, Barnabas and Saul, Saul didn't just continue on by himself. He just like, man, it's just hard to get along with missionaries. I think I'll just go by myself. And that is what I've heard. People that have been missionaries, I've heard this, I've asked guys at Southern that were missionaries because I've heard this in books and I've heard other people say, missionaries, the biggest problem they have is not going out and dealing with the people they're ministering to, it's getting along with each other. That's their biggest problem, their biggest hindrance. When Paul had a fallout with Barnabas, no, it says in Acts 15 that after that happened, he chose Silas. And it's Paul and Silas going forth from there on out. I'm saying it helps to have somebody there with you. A few years back, I haven't been able to do it like I used to, not because I don't want to. I would take the day and go do the Thunder Over Louisville thing. And I mean, man, you talk about chances to share the gospel. It's just all over the place there. And a buddy of mine that actually is the one, when God spoke to me about, you know, hey, you've got all this word you're bringing in, and how much are you bringing out? And I started praying about it, and then the Lord worked the circumstances out to where I got hooked up with this guy that did a lot of street ministry, campus ministry, been doing it for years. And... He would come down on that weekend and other times, but on Thunder Over Louisville, and we'd go out together to Thunder Over Louisville, hand out tracks, and mainly I'm looking to have conversations with people in groups. But we would do that so many times, we just worked great together when that was going on, and we would have groups that would be standing around listening to us, and we would compliment each other. He would think of something to say that I hadn't thought to say, and it wasn't like we were in each other's way. There was no competition there, and it worked really well. And also, it's a long day. If you've ever done something like that, if you're really prayed up and you're really ministering to people, it wears you out spiritually, not so much physically. But there'd be times where you're talking to somebody one-on-one -on -one and he's over here, then we'd get together and we'd talk about how it went. And it would encourage you and we would encourage each other that way. So there really are different ways that when you minister together, you help each other out, you pray for one another, you keep each other encouraged. I'm saying there's a reason why he sent them out two by two. I had never done anything like that. I'd never gone out street witnessing. I was scared to death when I first did it. But I'd watch him. I'd watch things he'd do, things he'd say and all that. And it helped me. I learned a lot. And I learned things good and bad. Because some things I'm thinking, I don't think I'd do that. But I saw how it went and I thought, okay, I think I'll avoid that. But that's how you learn. Praise the Lord. That's how it works. So the Bible, really, the New Testament doesn't paint the picture of lone ranger Christians, does it? Going out two by two with others. So Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, that whole thing with the exception, that's not the rule. That's not what's typically taking place. Normally you're working with others, I think, to reach the lost. But one point I'd like to make is that everyone, it says he sent them out two by two. Everybody, in a sense, is sent in here without exception. We're all to be sent. The Great Commission is for all of us, not just for those that are apostles or evangelists. And so being sent, though, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to go to prison like we do, or Guatemala, the Dominican, or Norfolk, Virginia, just to make up some city, right? But everybody's sent, even people that can't get out of their house. I think they have a responsibility, in a sense, to pray for those that are going out, right? To pray for them. I mean, that is what the Great Commission is all about. But every person in here is responsible according to the Bible, to share the gospel wherever they are, at least when opportunities arise. Typically, people, I don't believe, pray for opportunities to share the gospel. I'm saying if you do, God will give them to you. Because if you're not praying for them, you're probably not looking for them, and they're probably just passing you by. What is it all about? If we're not sharing the truth, I mean, we're only can be responsible for ourselves, right? Who's going to do it? We've got to take that responsibility on ourselves. So what's the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's the purpose of that? 
just to speak in tongues? I mean, I think that's one purpose. I don't know that that's the primary purpose. I think it's a great purpose. But in Acts 1.8, when Jesus gave them the promise and told them to wait for this, don't go do anything, he says, until the Spirit comes. He said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So it sounds to me from our Lord's mouth, doesn't matter what I say, that one of the main purposes to receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is so that we can share and witness to people. Isn't that what we just read, Acts 1-8? I think that's one of the main purposes, not to receive the Holy Spirit to form a club, but to share the gospel. He says, start in your hometown, start in Jerusalem, and work your way out. And that's what we see. That's the way the book of Acts unfolds, actually. The activities in Jerusalem, and by the time you're to Acts 28, the end of the chapter, it's gone out to the uttermost parts of the earth, exactly what Jesus said should happen. And that's the way it should be. When they didn't do that, when the people in the book of Acts didn't do what the Lord had told them to do, and they started the first Jerusalem Buddy Club Church, guess what God did? He's got his ways and means. If you don't do what he says, he's got his way of getting you to do it. Like they used to say about Jonah, you know. He's not unwilling, but God sure made him willing. And that's kind of what happened here. So if you would, put something there in Mark and turn to Acts chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, meaning Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So he left the apostles in Jerusalem, but everybody else is scattered because of persecution. God brought it on. He's got to get the word out. They're not doing what he told them to do. And so verse 2, it says, Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. And look at verse 4. Therefore... They that were scattered abroad, what did they do? Went everywhere preaching the word. So listen, they weren't going out. Now you think, wow, they're preachers? No, they weren't going out and getting soapboxes and standing up and preaching sermons or getting pulpits and preaching sermons. That's not what they were doing. They were just everyday people like me and you, and they were gossiping, it says, gossiping, sharing the gospel telling what God had done for them. And if you will, you're in Acts 8. Just turn over to Acts 11, and we'll see that. Acts 11, because it talks about this group again that was scattered. Acts 11, and in verses 19 to 21, and it says, Now they which were scattered abroad, the same group, upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, and what did they do? It says they preaching the word to none but the Jews only, and some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians and preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Okay, so there in verse 19, it said they went as far as Phoenice, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. Well, that word for preaching there is not your standard word for preaching. It's actually the word that you would use if you were saying we were having a conversation or talking. It's the Greek word laleo. It just means to speak or talk. And that's what they were doing. They're just going out. They got scattered. The places that they were scattered to, they're talking to people. And it says preaching, yeah. But talking to people, just they're not, like I said, they're not on a soapbox. It's just people like me and you. As the opportunities come up, they're sharing the gospel gladly telling people, look, this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. This is the life you can have, just like I have. That's what they're doing there. That's what we're reading. And so the point is, God has given to all of us the word and ministry of reconciliation. That is our responsibility, right? It's our privilege, not just a responsibility, right? Really, what is the best way we can love our neighbor as ourselves? I mean, the best thing that ever happened to me are the people I met along the way that were bold enough to share the gospel with me and didn't really care what I thought about it. Because I wasn't acting all that happy to their face, but boy, I'd give them a kiss right now. Somewhere on their head, I guess, right? 
So to ask God to give us wisdom to save a soul from hell, that's the greatest thing. It really is. That is the greatest thing we can do for somebody. But it's like the last thing a lot of times that we want to do. We want them to like us and be cool or whatever. But man, the best thing we're ever going to do is figure out a way to present the gospel to them that they're not offended and they can listen. And they may be offended, but to do it in an inoffensive way. So back to Mark, over back in Mark chapter 6. And the second part of his strategy is he gives them power over unclean spirits. And we see that at the end of verse 7. He sends them forth two by two, and he gave them power, it says, over unclean spirits. So we need to understand that word for power, it just means authority. Authority over the demons. And what we need to see is it wasn't in themselves. Duh you would say, right? But that's important. It was an authority that was what? It's nothing they dreamed up or thought, I'm going to go do this. It was something that was given to them by the Lord. Nothing they had in and of themselves. It was given, and that's crucial to remember because we're not doing anything we do in ministry. It's, we've got to get this out of our mind. It's because of our wisdom. We've thought up the right thing to say. It's none of that. You might want to think, but it's got to be the Holy Spirit's got to be in what you're doing or you're getting nowhere. It's that authority that is given. Not because we're spiritual giants. Not because we had some good idea. Not because we saw somebody else do it and we thought it looked like a good thing to do. Ask the seven sons of Sceva how well that works. Right? They got attacked. But what are we, though? He sent them like he sends us. And so you send somebody... A king sends somebody, what do you call that person? They're ambassadors. That's us. We didn't decide to go. It's the Lord's idea, just like here. He sent them out at that time. So we represent the one who sent us. So they knew Jesus sent them, and they knew they've been watching him. They're seeing everything he's done now for, I think, about a year, I guess. And now he's sending them out to do the same thing. And they're thinking, he's the one that sent me out to meet these people and talk to these people? I've never met him before. I'm just doing what I've seen him do. And so he's the one giving me the authority. It's not my idea. And I guess it's going to work. Because they're probably thinking, I sure don't feel like much. I haven't been that long ago I was fishing or ripping people off in their taxes. And now I'm going to go out here and preach the gospel to them and see miraculous things happen like you read about in the Old Testament. They're probably thinking, wow, I can't see myself doing that. But we got to get our eyes off of ourselves, don't we? We think about ourselves too much, man, you'll never do a thing. You know, back in that prison I go to, the littlest, petitest, blonde-haired guard, she can tell the biggest, baddest dude in there, you get out of that lunch line and go back to your dorm. That's not going to make him happy. But guess what? He's going to do it. Not because he couldn't handle her. He could handle her easy. But it's because of the authority that she was given. It wasn't her idea on what the rules are there. She's just doing what she was told to do, using the authority she was given to do, and it works. Those prisoners have to obey them. Because let her try that when she's out of uniform, staying next to some big guy in the McDonald's line, tell him to go get in his car and go home. He can tell her to get lost. But she's got that uniform on that's been given to her, that authority, and the state of Kentucky's backing it up. Amen? Jesus had given them his authority and power, only doing what he asked them to do. And think about that. They go out. That had to be the first time for them, right? They'd never done it before that we read about. The first time they cast a spirit and command a spirit that manifests to come out of that person, and they see it actually obey. Put yourself in their shoes. Like, wow, that's just the same thing I saw him do. And it happened. Or they lay hands on a leper and see him cleansed right before their eyes. And they're realizing this has nothing to do with me. It's because my Lord and Master gave me this authority and this power to do that, right? And that's the thing. He's given us the same authority. Do we believe it? Because Mark 16, Jesus said, in my name. In my name, he said. Not in our name. He says, you can cast out devils and you, you can lay hands on the sick in his name. And he says, they shall recover, not might recover. Now, like we said, you can't just go do that on everybody because you think I'm going to show them who I am. No, but as God leads, it will happen. They shall recover because we're doing it in his name. 
not because of anything in us. So back to that story about Peter and John when they raised that lame man up. Peter said this, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why do you look at us so earnestly as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? They knew it. They knew that their power or authority didn't come from within, but it came from him. But here's the other thing we need to realize. It didn't come from him like a disinterested boss would give you authority. It didn't happen that way. It was because they had experienced, as we said at the beginning, the first part of Mark. Mark chapter 3. They were with him. So they had a close relationship with him. They knew him. That demon in that man said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Because you don't know Jesus at all, and I know you don't. Because the spiritual realm, those demons, they can recognize when a person's got the anointing, when they've got the Spirit of God on them, and when they're just playing games. It won't work, will it? So you've got to be with him, have that close relationship. And so the rulers of the temple, they arrest Peter and John because of that lame man walking, and they bring them before them, and they're like, whose name and authority are you doing this in? And Peter, he's not bashful. I'm not doing it in mine. I'm doing it in the name of the one you crucified and God has raised from the dead. And it said this about them. Now when they, those rulers, saw the boldness and where did that boldness come from? That Holy Spirit that's in them. The boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. That's me and Tanner, isn't it? Aren't we unlearned and ignorant? We are. They marveled, it says, and they took knowledge of them, though, that they had been with Jesus. There it is again. That's where that authority and anointing comes from. If you're interested, I'm interested. I think a lot of us are. That's where it comes from. The boldness, the authority, the power, and the anointing comes from spending time in prayer and fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ at the throne. But another point I want to make here is you can't wait until you think you have all the knowledge you need, all the information, all the experience you have before you go out in his name, before you step out in faith. Before you step out in faith and pray for somebody or witness to somebody, because he's sending these guys out at this point. They've got a limited amount of knowledge and zero experience. It had to happen at some time, right? All they've done is observed. And maybe that's all you've done up to this point. You've just read your Bible and you've observed what Jesus did, the things that happened in the Bible. And you don't have that much experience. Well, listen, you've got to start, don't you? I mean... Jesus sends them out here. It didn't always go well with him. He kept sending them out again and again and again. And we'll see, he's got to get on their case and correct them repeatedly throughout the times he sends them out. And they're still dealing with doubt and unbelief. He has to rebuke them for that and correct them. But he still sent them out. And they still saw results. Because each time they learn, they gain experience. And we need to see that. Jesus sent out imperfect men. You're not going to learn how to swim just by sitting on the beach. You're going to get hot, right? And you're going to dry up. And that's what will happen to you here. You just sit and you never try to use what you've learned through all these years. You'll dry up. You will. You'll lose your life. Because we're supposed to have a river coming out of us, aren't we? To minister to others. I'm saying it'll make all the difference in the world. You don't want to dry up. And so, you know. You throw somebody in the pool, or I got my little boy, we're going to be working on swimming down in Florida. It's funny to watch people swim for the first time, isn't it? But it's necessary, right? And they stick with it, and next thing you know, they're doing it without thinking about it. And so here, the third thing that we see here in his set of instructions is, in verses 8 and 9, he sends them out with the bare necessities. And he commanded them, verse 8, that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And why is that? Why does he send them out like that? Well, for one thing, the more you've got to pack, the less mobile you are, right? <laughs> the less easy it is to get around. It's going to be hard to go from village to village to village if you've got to move your furniture every time. So they're not having to do that. But another big reason that he's having them take the bare essentials is what would that cause them to do? 
Look what it calls them to do. Trust God only. Wow, a life of faith. Can you imagine that? God calls somebody to, to live a life of faith, right? And that's what they'd have to do. They'd have to trust him for food, shelter, and protection, wouldn't they? He didn't give them that. They're in trouble. So what's he doing? He's calling them here. He's, they've already had the Sermon on the Mount preached. And he's calling them here to put that into practice, what he said in Matthew chapter 6. And what did he tell them there? He said, look at those birds. Look at the birds on the telephone lines. Well, they wouldn't have had those then, right? But look at them. He's like, buddy, they don't sow, they don't plant, they don't reap, they don't have crops to eat from, and yet your heavenly Father, he says, your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you a lot more valuable than them, is what he tells them? To your heavenly Father, the same heavenly Father, he feeds these birds, he's not going to leave you. And then he says, look at the lilies, those beautiful flowers gorgeously dressed and they never worked on their wardrobe I'd like to get that tape didn't work on their wardrobe a minute and it says God dressed them better than Solomon was dressed and he says you don't think he'll do the same thing for you oh ye of little faith he added on there and he tells him he says no all I want you all to take is a walking stick and your sandals and that's it he tells him not to take script Oh, what's script? You know what script is, Josh? Money. No, it's not money. That's a good guess, though. That's a good guess. No, it's either one of two things. It could either be a bag, a traveling bag, or a beggar's purse, a beggar's bag. And I think it's probably the beggar's bag. You know why? Because we see that a lot with traveling preachers now or preachers on TV. They got their beggar's bag, and it's never filled up never seems to get filled up just the opposite of what we're reading here with Jesus right so he tells them no bread no money in the purse and only one coat and that means if God doesn't provide for them they're not going to have a place to stay they're going to be outside they're going to be cold and their stomach is going to be growling right a growling stomach it's significant that he says that to them because what's the message that they're going to be preaching they're going to be telling people the kingdom of God is here the God that will supply all of your needs, look out for you, is here. Repent and put your trust in the living God. And so what message would they have to preach if they've got all of these things they're having to take around with them just in case? You know, how much of a testimony is that going to be? But what did Peter and John, what did they say back to that beggar at the gate beautiful? Peter said, silver and gold, I don't have any. But such as I have, I give unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He told him, rise up and walk. I don't have any gold to give you. Can't give you money to go get some therapy done. No, this is all I have to give you is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all we have. And that's a principle of ministry throughout the Bible. So what about when Elisha healed Naaman? You know, Naaman, he's like, man, I want to bless you, Elisha. You helped me out so much. Give him a gift for healing. And Elisha's like, as the Lord lives, I don't want anything for this. Nothing. It's free. But Gehazi, Elijah's servant, he's thinking, man, we just let that guy off way too easy. He's our enemy at rich general. And so he goes after Naaman and catches up with him. And he goes, hey, my master sent me. And we had a couple prophets come, and, and we just wonder if you could give us some silver and just a little bit of clothes, just, just a little piece of silver or whatever. Of course, Naaman is like, oh, are you kidding? No problem. I'll give you twice, three times that much silver and two changes of clothes or whatever. And so Gehazi comes back to Elisha, and Elisha says, where did you go, Gehazi? And Gehazi said, nowhere. Well, I'll tell you, there's some people it just doesn't pay to lie to. Elisha's one of them, and Peter's the other one, right? We know that. Because here's what Elisha said to Gehazi, 2 Kings 5. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maidservants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee. In other words, he's saying, you just spoiled our testimony with this guy that we had, that God will provide all of our needs and that he will bless us. And we don't need to take advantage of anybody's generosity. 
He's asking him, who healed that guy anyways? Did you, Gehazi, did you heal him? Did you have that power that you should be rewarded? That's what he's saying. What are you doing? Right? And what did Jesus say to the 12 when he sent them out? In Matthew's account, the same account, but Matthew has a little something different. He said, as you go preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. And he adds at the end, freely you have received, freely give. And that's the way it should be in all forms of ministry, shouldn't it? It should be. You know, Ray Comfort, some of you guys know who Ray Comfort is. He's been on TV, does evangelism and all that. Well, back before he moved to the U.S., he was pastor of a church in New Zealand. And I like this. One time, his people of his church, they went through the neighborhood and they gave out bags of fruit with a note on them. And here's what the note said. We apologize for all of the ministries that do nothing but beg and take your money. This is not what Jesus commanded his disciples. And we want to give you this fruit for you to enjoy with no strings attached. And he said, you wouldn't believe the people that came and knocked on his door and on his church's door. We can't believe that. You've done that. That blessed us so much. And people were like, I've never received something from a church. <laughs> what does that tell you? We're supposed to be giving people, right? That should be our testimony to our family, friends, and people in the community that we're trusting God to supply our needs and we'll gladly, freely give you whatever you need to help you out, including the gospel, right? And so maybe you're thinking, I don't have much. Well, Hey, if I was somebody in the community that was hurting and you told me you'd take the time to pray for me, that'd mean a whole lot to me. And maybe that's all you really have. You can just say, hey, I'll take the time to pray for you. But listen, what about somebody that you know is giving you a hard way to go and you have something that they need and they know it means a lot to you and they see you give that to them? Isn't that what he says in Romans chapter 12? If your enemy's hungry, feed him. Pray for him. Give him something to drink. Give him more than that if he needs it. Help him out. That's going to speak volumes to him, right? God will use that to convict them, he says. It'll open the door to share the gospel with them. Then they'll be, definitely be open to receive them. That's how God works. And Paul said this in Acts chapter 20. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Paul says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's how gospel ministry should work. Amen. It should. So if we're going to preach faith, we've got to live faith. And we need to seek first the kingdom of God, and that includes preaching the gospel to people and his righteousness, doing what's right. He says he'll give you everything you're worried about, everything that the world worries about. So in conclusion, I just would ask this question, do we believe? Because I know how it is when you preach on evangelism. Some people feel guilty, and they'll go out for a week and start witnessing, and then that's kind of the end of it. That's just the way it works. It's just honestly the way it is. But do we really believe 2 Timothy 3.16? And you're like, well, I don't know. What is 2 Timothy 3.16? Where it's the verse that says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so my question is, the section of Scripture we're reading tonight, does that apply to us being sent forth to share the gospel freely? Or is that just for the 12? Or is that for all of us? We looked at the book of Acts. We looked at Acts chapter 8 when he sent and scattered that church. They met their responsibility. They went and they talked the gospel. They talked about what God had done. They witnessed to people throughout the region. That's what they did. And that's a model for us. Just not another story. The book of Acts is just not another good history story to read, isn't it? It's meant to instruct us in how we should live. And we talked about we'll find strength. Go out two by two. Go out with somebody else. Amen. You know, here's a guy's church we visited. One thing they did is people got together, several of them, 
they said, hey, you know, we're right near a college, and let's go down there and set up, and they started, set it up themselves, and the church got involved, ministering to the foreign students there, sharing the gospel, seeing people saved. It was in their heart to do it, right? And I think that's the responsibility we have to represent him to this generation because we're the only ones. The only one generation, you think about it, has actually seen the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. How has everyone else ever known about him? It's through somebody sharing the gospel with him. And that's our responsibility to our generation, right? So, is your Christian life boring? Seems you don't have any motivation. I'm just telling you from my own experience, my own life. You get your life right with God first because until you do that, you won't do any sharing. That's just the way it is. You know, it's like they say, the reason people don't witness, it's not because of fear. It's because they got sin in their life. But deal with that. Get your life right with the Lord and determine you're going to obey him and somehow share the gospel in whatever way you can. And you'll just find things. Your, your life has meaning and purpose in a way it never has before. It really has. And I mean, you share the gospel and somebody receives it. Boy, then there's nothing that puts a little skip in your step like that. That's really the way it is. It's going to involve commitment and sacrifice to do it, to do it for more than just a week. And what we need to understand is we think that, you know, we've got such a busy life and all these things to do, like we're some unique generation. And I'm telling you, every generation, man is man. So the 70 and the apostles, they all had things they could have been doing other than going out and sharing the gospel. Believe me, the world's the world. The devil's the devil. There's been activities. There's been games, sports, social events, gambling, all the things that the world does, right? I mean, we got it modified with social media or whatever, but I'm saying the world's always been the world. The early disciples could have been doing other things. And it takes sacrifice to be committed to sharing the gospel. It's not going to just happen. It isn't. You can still have your family time and fellowship with the church and all that. But there's no set pattern, is there? So for some people it's prison. For somebody else it may be going to a high school. Somebody else it could be whatever. You've got to pray about it. I can guarantee you this. That you get sent out of your life, you consecrate yourself to the Lord, and you say, Lord, I want to obey you. I want to share you with other people. I want to share this life I've received here, sitting out here with someone else. I guarantee you, he will open the door, and you'll know it's him. He will in some way. It'll happen. So let's look at our church as a place of fellowship, encouragement, and worship. It's all of those things, right? But let's also look at it as a launching pad to minister to the spiritual needs of the lost. And not just make that a phrase that everybody likes to amen. Let's make it a reality in our lives, right? And I was listening, I was preparing this sermon. I've got this Maranatha thing that just plays an endless loop. And it's nice, quiet music. I like it. Ministers to me. And I'm getting down to this part and this song comes on. The old Maranatha song I like. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Amen. All right, well, we'll look at the rest of it down to verse 31 next time. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, I just ask that you'll put it on all of our hearts that it's not just a responsibility, but also a privilege and a joy that we can share what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in our lives with other people and that they can experience also the life and the freedom from sin that we've experienced and also the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and deliverance and the joy that can be given. I just ask that you'll show us that, Lord. It's not just something we have to do but don't really want to, but that you'll just make it in all of our hearts as we commune with you and as if we're with you. You'll put it in our hearts that we can share you, the living Savior, with others and see them come to know you. And I just thank you that you'll do that for us here and make us a church that is a witnessing church. It's one of our top priorities, and that's why we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You'll just make us a church like that. And I thank you that you will. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you stand to your feet. One day the Father of glory reached out with his righteous
Boom.